These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. I've lost track of the episode numbering for this show, but this is something like episode 120, and pretty much all of those previous episodes have been spent looking at various aspects of Bronze Age Mesopotamia. Today we're going to take a step way, way back and try to get an overview of the entire region from about 3000 BCE to 1200 BCE, all in a single episode, before we move on into the Iron Age. If you haven't listened to anything else in the Oldest Stories podcast, no worries. This is meant as an introduction for you as well. In the spirit of taking nothing for granted, we should start with the question, what is Mesopotamia? The word itself comes from Greek, meaning between the rivers, and the two rivers which dominate the landscape are the Euphrates and Tigris. In modern-day terms, this is the nation of Iraq, more or less, and the fertile land created by the two rivers was the foundation of one of the world's oldest civilizations, the Sumerian civilization, which arose in Mesopotamia around 4000 BCE, is particularly significant in that it was the first in the world to invent writing. Writing, so you know, was only ever invented three times. First in Sumer, then in China, and finally among the Olmecs, or maybe the Epi-Olmecs, of Mesoamerica. Having the first writing means that Sumer has the oldest written histories and the written documentation in the world. When that history opens, though, right around 3000 BCE, we find that civilization has actually been rolling along for quite a while. In its earliest forms, Mesopotamian civilization can be traced back to the people called the Ubayids, who occupied the region in prehistory since at least 8000 BCE. Now, if those Ubayids, of whom we know almost nothing, were the same people as the later Sumerians, just with a slightly different culture, or if the Sumerians came from some unknown land and displaced the natives, is unclear and hotly debated in archaeological circles. Still, around 4000 BCE, a millennium before writing really gets going, those early temple complexes and towns of the Ubayids hit their stride and become the city-states of the Sumerians. From 4000 BCE to about 2400 BCE, the 30 or so major cities, plus a bunch of smaller towns in the lower Mesopotamian plain, will rise and fall, trade and make war on each other, and generally live the fullness of human existence tied to the rivers. They will extend those rivers, even, with a massive canal network ultimately covering most of the region, turning what should rightly be a desert into farmland, and those virgin lands will have crop yields that rival modern agriculture without all the advanced technology of today, at least for a little while. These food surpluses will see the greatest cities, Ur, Eridu, Larsa, Kish, and others, swell into the low tens of thousands of peoples each, and there will still be so much food 
that the people can afford to trade by boat with Egypt and with the Indus Valley civilization in northern India, as well as up the rivers to modern-day Lebanon and Turkey, and even into the Iranian mountains where the Elamites live. Exchanging their grain, as well as woolen textiles, reeds, and pottery, for metals, woods, precious stones, and luxury items, the Sumerians will build a civilization at the center of a trade network, and even begin accidentally exporting the idea of writing, as the Egyptians and Indians see the power of transmitting a person's words and thoughts across vast distances of time and space through markings on clay and other materials. In this period, though, different cities rose and fell in prominence at different times. The undisputed champion, though, was the city of Uruk. Though Uruk did not dominate continuously, it had a number of times where it was the dominant city across the 4th millennium BCE. Though many folks think of Babylon as the preeminent city of Mesopotamia, Babylon had not even been founded at this point. It was from the kings of Uruk that other Mesopotamians took their cues. Uruk never seems to have had conquered the whole region or formed any sort of territorial state, but wars between cities were frequent, and Uruk, during its peaks, could demand tribute and submission from other cities. The significance of Uruk itself in the long run is twofold. First, Perhaps the greatest of old epics, the royal epics of Uruk, include the stories which would form the core of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Second, the lasting power and influence of Uruk would keep the name around until even today, when the modern nation of Iraq bears an Arabized version of that ancient name. The city itself likely capped out around 30 to 40,000 inhabitants, and during the 4th millennium BCE, this made it the world's largest city by far. The period as a whole, however, would prove critically important for the development of the entire Near East. Agriculture, metalworking, religion, and trade had all been invented before this time, but it was during the long period of Uruk's dominance that they matured to a level that would come to define the early Sumerian civilization. As important as Uruk and the Uruk period are, though, there's regrettably little that can be said about them. Though it was during this period that writing was invented, it took people a while to realize the full power of writing down things more complicated than receipts and ownership records. As the historical fog slowly lifts, we see Sumer as a flourishing civilization of dozens of competing city-states. Though the region was crisscrossed with navigable rivers and a lot of nice reed boats to carry people and goods all around, and generally pretty flat, the constant warring cities still found it relatively difficult to actually go around conquering their neighbors. Sure, they would fight, but they could never seem to make a conquest stick, possibly because they were too honorable to attempt total war, or more likely, because the logistical capacity to actively rule over more than a few 10,000-man cities was as yet beyond them. 
Now, this era, from about 3000 to 2400, is called the Early Dynastic Period because it was characterized by one city coming to dominance, ruling for a few generations, then losing preeminence to another rising power. Like I said, this rise and fall involved battles, and cities were sometimes looted, but did not involve, for the most part, actual conquest. The two main keys for dominance in this era were how many cities nominally accepted you as their superior, sometimes sending tribute payments, and who was the official patron of the city of Dipur. Of the dozens of cities, each with a temple and religious complex, none of them had the cultural cachet of Nippur, situated a bit towards the northern end of Sumer. And, for reference, I am going to be reposting some maps of the region on the official post for today's episode on the Oldest Stories podcast, link down in the description. Anyway, Nippur was strange. No one was really sure how it got its particular status. At least no one nowadays, maybe back in the old days, they knew and just didn't tell anybody. At some point in the pre-literate period, the traditional Sumerian pantheon led by the father of gods, An, was upended and a new king and god named Enlil became ruler of the heavens. Enlil's primary temple was located in Nippur, and Nippur, while functionally much like the other cities, diplomatically and religiously became a holy city. Nippur alone seems to have been mostly exempt from the cycle of warfare, and even when wars were fought over it, the actual fighting may have taken place exclusively outside the city itself. Nippur was never to lead the region, but whoever was most influential in the region and wealthy enough to pay for the patronage of Nippur's massive temple complex would have a claim to be leading the region of Sumer and all the people of the various cities. It isn't wholly clear what practical purpose this arrangement served for the various patron kings, though Perhaps politics and the power of ideas were at this point already strong enough to sustain such a curious and artificial state of affairs. Real, actual history involving Sumerians actually writing down things that have happened recently so that future generations can remember begins in the city of Lagash. Lagash is not a top city, just one player in the game, and in truth may not be the first city to really write down historical documents, just the oldest one which survives and has been recovered. Right around 2500 BCE, Lagash and its neighboring city Umma were locked in a decades-old conflict over land and water rights in a stretch of territory between the two cities. And after a king of Lagash won a great victory, he carved a large stone, which we call the Stela of the Vultures, describing the battle. His personal heroics were also included, and he even, well, not he, his, his scribes, drew some scenes from the aftermath of the battle to show off how cool he was. 
The actual significance of this battle was minimal. It was one more power struggle among countless others. But Lagash gets to be remembered because they recorded their history while the rest get forgotten. An interesting side note in Lagash, not only do they have the first known Mesopotamian war stela, they also appear to have the oldest legal reformer, a fellow named Urakagina, who tried to bring compassion into a government that had grown corrupt. Soon after the story of Lagash grows cold, though, the entire dynastic era of cities rising and falling reaches its crescendo. A man named Lugal Zagezi does what many others had tried to do before, unites basically all of Sumer under his single rule, or I should say nearly does so. With a coalition of southern cities at his back, he needs only to take Kish and a few northern cities to solidify his rule over the entire world, or at least the entire world in, of all the parts that are relevant, not including the parts that don't matter because they're not in Sumer. However, during the siege of Kish, sometime in the mid-2300s BCE, at least according to much later legends, a man of humble origins got tired of watching the king of Kish be incompetent and decided that he could do a lot better. This man, later known to history as Sargon of Akkad, or Sargon the Great, managed to take power while the city was under siege, rallying the defenders, then defeated the invading army and established the core of a new empire. He would found a new town of Akkad, or maybe he moved into and greatly expanded an already existing city, and he would use the power of the north to build the great Akkadian empire. Now a word on Sumer and Akkad here. The Sumerians are the people of southern Mesopotamia. Their language is wholly unique in the entire world, and they invented pretty much everything that's the foundation of later Mesopotamian civilization. During the rise of Sumer, this early dynastic period that we've been talking about, another group has slowly been migrating in from the northwest. This group, called the Akkadians, speak a Semitic language, an ancestor of modern Arabic and Hebrew, and they're probably from somewhere in the Levant, maybe modern-day Syria or thereabouts. That said, it isn't 100% clear if the Akkadians were called Akkadians before Sargon established the city of Akkad as his capital, and there's much that's obscure about the empire in general, because the city of Akkad has never been successfully located by modern archaeology, and its location has been lost to history for thousands of years. Back then to the mid-2300s BCE, relatively quickly we see that Sargon had his big showdown with Lugal Zagezi. He was victorious and proceeded to conquer all of Mesopotamia. But Sargon was not one to relax in his palace for too long, and soon enough he constructed the largest empire the entire world had ever seen up to that point, stretching from Lebanon and central Anatolia in the west, and maybe he even sent out an expedition to Cyprus, all the way into southern Iran, the Elamite lands in the east. 
This whole area, it turns out, was full of tiny city-states and minor kingdoms, all just starting to get into the whole civilization thing. But when Sargon showed up, he established the first territorial state that they had ever seen, establishing Akkadian garrisons and government buildings all over the place, dividing the land up into regional capitals, and attempting to establish a real sort of unified imperial order beyond just demanding a declaration of submission and a pile of loot. And in a sense, the massive, sudden Akkadian Empire left its mark for centuries afterwards. Probably the most notable effect is that after the empire spread, its language went all over the Near East. People in the Near East had, for the first time, a common tongue to communicate in for diplomatic and trade purposes. The Akkadian language is going to become the default language of diplomacy, and even a thousand years after the fall of the Akkadian Empire, the great kings of the Egyptians and Hittites and Babylonians and Mitanni and Assyrians and everybody is still going to be using Akkadian to conclude their most important treaties. Even after the fall of the Mesopotamian nations to the Persian Empire, and after the fall of the Persians to Alexander the Great, we still occasionally see the Akkadian language used in things written by the Seleucid kings, so 2,400 years in active use is not a bad legacy. More to the point, though, the Akkadian Empire really brought the entire Near East in more direct political contact with each other, widening the playing field for successive eras. The Empire itself, however, enjoyed maybe a bit under 100 years of good times, and maybe about 50 years of bad times. Sargon was succeeded by his twin sons, Ramush and Manishtashu. One killed the other, and both were sort of mediocre. They did okay, but by comparison to Sargon and Sargon's grandson, they were just so-so. Sargon's grandson, though, Naram-Sin, was another bright spot ruling the empire for decades of prosperity and stability, really bringing the whole imperial project together. Ultimately, he got a pretty bad reputation in history, though, because it was either at the back end of his reign or into the reign of his successor that the wheels started to really fall off. Three factors are generally listed to explain the fall of the Akkadian Empire poor leadership in, gener in the generations after Naram-Sin, a massive climatological change occurring in the entire region, and the arrival of the Gutians. Around maybe 2150 BCE, the Akkadian Empire was basically over, replaced by a post-apocalyptic wasteland where crops didn't grow right, and instead of mohawked motorcyclists, they had hairy Iranian mountain men called Gutians running around. The thing about the Gutians, which differentiated them from many other invaders that the region would see, is that they came down into the Mesopotamian plain and appear to have been supremely unimpressed by the civilization they found around them. 
They pillaged and plundered and raided and walked their livestock wherever they felt like. Some of them squatted in cities from time to time, but they did not take over the cities and rule them as conquerors. They just passed through like barbarians, and the level of destruction they left in their wake would be remembered for generations afterwards, even spawning an entire poetic genre called the Lament for a City, which can even be seen in the biblical book of Lamentations, written in that genre, not about the Gutians. They were writing it about a later period. But it's the same same. Uh, style. It's imitating the ancient Mesopotamian style. Not every city was plundered completely by the Gudians. Lagash, for example, managed to hold their walls for at least most of the period, but definitely much of the critical countryside was despoiled, and population in the lands of Sumer and Akkad fell drastically during the dark century of Gutian domination. Thankfully, the fact that the Gutians were uninterested in really having tight control over the cities also allowed those cities to quietly rebuild themselves, especially as the climate started to recover. Sometimes the city leaders could pay off the local Gutians to stop bothering them, and other times they were able to adjust their defensive forces to protect their area. Around 2100, things changed, and... Don't take these early dates too seriously. I'm giving them mostly as a reference here, and the truth is they don't always add up. The Gutian Dark Age may have been a 40-year generation of hardship, or it may have been over a century of barbarian dominance. The scholars are all very fuzzy on how long this lasted. But once we get to 2100, things do begin to clear up. At this time, a fellow named Ur-Namu, in the great city of Uruk, leads a bunch of military campaigns and does a great job clearing out the Gutians. After him, control of the entire region passes to the city of Ur, though through some marriage and inheritance stuff. It's not a conquest, the, the dynasty just shifts over to Ur. And with this we get a final great flourishing of Sumerian culture lasting right about 100 years, called the Ur III dynasty, or the Third Dynasty of Ur. This was a period where all of Sumer and Akkad were once again united, this time under Sumerian kings, and the peace and stability, plus the huge cultural and economic changes of the Akkadian Empire, gave the Sumerian scribes a whole lot to work with. A good chunk of our best and oldest writings come from this period, and one of the middle kings of this century, a king named Shulgi, was even something of a scholar himself, proposing innovations to the cuneiform script, the education system, and funding a lot of cultural activity. Now, the final Sumerian dynasty was nowhere as big as the Akkadian Empire had been, comprising basically the area south of modern-day Baghdad, but the Mesopotamian heartland had once again united. Trade flowed freely from India to Egypt, and the Sumerians could view their culture as having triumphed over foreign domination. This period was perhaps the brightest shining golden age of the entire Bronze Age. And I should say, 
If you're interested in either the Sumerian period specifically or the Akkadian Empire, you can, of course, check out the early episodes of the Oldest Stories podcast. It goes generally in chronological order. Or you can read the two best books on this subject, The Sumerians by Samuel Noah Kramer and The Age of Agata by Benjamin R. Foster, both of which you can find in the notes for this episode. I don't get any money for this. They're just really good books. But all good things come to an end, and the Ur dynasty came crashing to a halt right around the year 2000 BCE. The trouble for the Ur dynasty was that they're being invaded by Western Semitic nomads called the Amorites, who come in, plunder whatever they can, and generally make things miserable for the civilized people of Mesopotamia. However, there was one key difference between the Amorites and the Gutians. The Amorites were quite impressed by the local culture, and while there was a certain amount of cultural shift involved, they were generally happy to adopt a version of the Akkadian language, learn to write in cuneiform, and rule over the cities that they conquered in a generally Mesopotamian fashion. This means that while the new Amorite warrior overlords we're going to plunge the region into a few more centuries of internecine warfare and chaos, it will at least be well-documented historical chaos, which we were able to look at in a certain amount of detail on the podcast. The short version, though, is that this period from about 2000 BC to 1750 BCE was called the Isin Larsa period, named for the top two cities in the region during the time, though there were many others all fighting against each other. It seems that now that they'd seen the Akkadian Empire and the Ur dynasty rise and fall, all of the petty kings of Sumer and Akkad were fighting it out to establish the next great empire. Isin, a city in the north, got off to a pretty early lead, managing to recover even while the Amorite invasions were still taking place. The early kings of Isin were good at war, they were good at trade, they were good at diplomacy, and when those things failed, they may have been the first to realize that their upstream position gave them power over the downstream cities, in the two rivers, and we see them digging canals and constructing dams in the Tigris and Euphrates with the specific intention of denying water to their enemies downstream. Chief among those downstream enemies, then, was the city of Larsa, a southern upstart that had begun to gain ground by investing in some of the most extensive canal projects that had been seen thus far filling in a good chunk of the formerly useless desert between the Tigris and Euphrates, opening up a ton more land for agriculture. There were a few more players in the game, but in the end, it was King Rim-Sin of Larsa, one of the most impressive kings of ancient Mesopotamia, who managed to unite the entire southern land of Sumer under one rule again, and keep control of it for the second half of his 60-year reign. Also, although they aren't part of the Isin Larsa drama, we can hardly skip over this period without mentioning the rise of the city of Asher, home of the future Assyrian Empire. 
Asher is one of the most interesting cities in all of Mesopotamia in this early period. While every other city is ruled over by a king who's justified by his military and by the will of the gods, Asher appears to have been the world's first great traders. Sure, other cities had people who went out and did trade, often over impressive distances, going back even to the great Uruk period, but Asher was ruled by merchants to a degree that no other contemporary city or kingdom was. They founded trade colonies in distant lands. They established joint stock companies to finance their expeditions and managed to become incredibly powerful without a correspondingly powerful army. That said, and this might shock you to hear, being incredibly wealthy without the ability to really protect themselves turned out to be a losing strategy in the long run, even if they did have some really impressive couple centuries. An Amorite named Shamsi Adad saw that the people of Asher had a bunch of money, but very little army, while he had a very large army and was a big fan of money. So he went and conquered Asher, then he had a big army, and a ton of money, which was a big win-win for everyone who mattered, on the assumption that if you weren't winning, then you didn't matter. But in the end, as fascinating and twisty as the conflicts of the Isinlar Superior were, they would all be doomed to obscurity by the rise of a third power, up in the north end of the Akkadian heartland, the city of Babylon, whose name would later come to be synonymous with urbanization, civilization, and decadence, both for good and ill, was founded along the Euphrates River sometime in the middle of the Isinlarsa period. It was originally just a middling Amorite warlord, just looking for a place to settle down, but by 1750, the great-great-grandson of that warlord would be a man named Hammurabi. With the rise of Hammurabi, we see the transition from the Isinlarsa period into the Old Babylonian period. Both Isinlarsa and Old Babylonian period together make up the Mesopotamian Middle Bronze Age. Hammurabi's career is hard to summarize quickly, and indeed the podcast takes ten whole episodes just to get through his life and times, but he came to power in an age of territorial states, with Babylon a middling power in the middle of the playing field. To his south, Rim-Sin had conquered Sumer and a bit of Akkad. To his north, Shamsi Adad had taken over not just Asher, but a, a huge swath of the northern Mesopotamian plain. To his immediate west is the kingdom of Mari, which is famous for the great cache of documents that archaeologists have discovered there, but at this time it was a subject state of the Yamhad dynasty, a kingdom based in the city of Aleppo, which controlled much of modern-day Syria. And yes, that is the same Aleppo that is still occupied today. It's one of the longest continuously occupied cities in the entire world. And in the east, the Elamites of southern Iran were at this period unified and dominant, making a push into the Diyala region where modern-day Iraq and Iran meet. 
From one perspective, the decades around 1750 BCE would make for one of the best settings for a video game. We got at least five major players, each of whom had a good shot to claw his way to total domination of the region. But ultimately, it would be Hammurabi, with cleverness, diplomacy, and military force, who would push back the Elamites. He would conquer North and South, and rule over the first Babylonian kingdom, with pretty much all of Mesopotamia under his command. It's in this context that he wrote and distributed the famous Law Code of Hammurabi. Now, this was not as is sometimes claimed, the first law code ever written, and in many ways it was following quite directly the law codes that had been established in generations before. But it was a big part of bringing this huge new area under Babylon's rulership, and it was referenced and admired by distant kings in later centuries. And perhaps most important, it was written in multiple copies on some very nice stones, which were picked up by some of the first archaeologists, helping to revitalize Hammurabi's fame into the modern era. Now, the old Babylonian kingdom lasted for a century and a half, and the dates on this are reasonably solid, about 1750 to 1600 BCE, give or take a little bit. None of Hammurabi's descendants were his equal, but overall, they generally seem to have been pretty good, at least until the last guy who gets a pretty bad reputation. Over time, the Babylonian empire was eaten away by three things. First, they appear to have had internal corruption problems. The kings do seem to have been applying Hammurabi's famous laws as best as they could, with some revisions until the end, but the various bureaucrats and nobles who were in charge of actually doing the day-to-day -day business of government appear to have grown increasingly corrupt over time, demanding bribes and tilting the scales of justice. Where once people seemed to have done pretty well under the new kingdom, they gradually soured on the empire and turned against it. At the same time, the land itself was turning sour beneath their feet. This has actually been going on since the very beginning, but agriculture in Sumer has a massive problem with something called salinization. Because the river water has a tiny amount of salt in it, all fresh water has some salt. You have to get distilled water to be completely salt-free. And drainage is, for a few reasons, really, really bad, especially in the southern end of Sumer. Over time, salt builds up in the fields each time they're irrigated. Now, Right at the beginning of civilization, this was essentially a non-issue, and the fields of Sumer were astonishingly productive. Over time, though, they had to largely switch from wheat to the more hardy but less delicious barley. And as time went on longer, even these barley crops didn't yield as much as they used to. This is why the kings of Sumer and Akkad were constantly digging new irrigation channels and opening up new fields. Because while there were a few things that could be done to combat salinization, none of these were super effective. And they took either a lot of work or they required the land to lay fallow for a really long time. 
by the time of Hammurabi, many of the great cities of Sumer are shadows of their former glory. And the only towns that are really doing good are the more recent foundings, where the soil hasn't been poisoned. Salinization, by the way, it's going to be a long-term problem for Mesopotamia, and they never really find a solution for it. They just rise and fall, in part based on the fertility of the soil. The third thing that really hurts Babylon is the arrival of a new wave of immigrants, tribes from Central Asia with a superweapon. Many different groups arrive in the Middle Bronze Age, but the one that affects Babylon the most is the Kassites, and their superweapon is the horse and chariot. The first attacks by Kassites are sudden and unexpected, and the Babylonians, having never seen a horse, having never seen anything that goes as fast as a warrior on a horse-drawn chariot, have no way to respond at all to this new kind of warfare. The Kassites penetrate deep into Babylonian territory before finally either withdrawing or being convinced to go away. We're not really sure why they stopped, but in this first crisis, it isn't clear that they were ever actually beaten. Over time, though, both the Kassites and the horse-drawn chariot get integrated into Babylonian society and military, but only imperfectly. When the Great Invasions around 1600 hit, the entire empire is eaten city by city, attacked by enemies we don't even know anything about. It's a mystery invasion, likely a combination of revolts by ethnic groups within the empire and attacks by perhaps those same ethnic groups outside the empire. Old Babylon is crushed in a relatively short time even before the creeping corruption of bad government and bad land can really knock them out. Then, in 1595 BCE, as almost an afterthought, the Hittites, the early Hittite Empire, shows up from Anatolia, basically like Martians coming from Mars, and utterly destroys the city, plundering everything and force-marching tens of thousands of civilians back to the Hittite homeland to be slaves. For a time, Babylon was an empty ruin, doomed to follow Akkad into the dustbin of history. And I will say, this is a summary of Mesopotamian history, but in the main podcast, I did like 20 episodes on the Hittites up in Anatolia, and they did turn out to be way more interesting than I expected. The short version for us, though, is that there were a bunch of kingdoms in Anatolia, which is the area of modern-day Turkey, and one of them took over a bunch of others, then built a real big empire, then marched over and sacked Babylon just for the lulls, then collapsed. Don't worry, they're going to build themselves back up and be a player again in the late Bronze Age, but that's enough for now. What used to be Babylon is now a graveyard. But in the power vacuum that followed, people in the Arab area began to remember that having a huge empire around is actually pretty great. It's way better than this post-apocalyptic anarchy nonsense we have. The whole area had been so stamped by Babylonian culture that when someone did try to do that whole empire thing again, they started by rebuilding the city of Babylon to establish their legitimacy. 
The folks who did that were some of these Kassites. But though the ruling clan will be Kassite for the next four centuries, the people of Babylon will still mostly be that peculiar Akkadian Amorite mix that just gets called Babylonian in later eras. The Kassites never forget that they were foreign invaders ruling over the land, but they actually did a pretty good job of being rulers, and so people mostly just went along with it. To solidify things, though, they did a whole lot of culturally extremely conservative things. They funded a bunch of ancient scholarship that looked back at their history, not Kassite history, but they were sort of adopting themselves into the Mesopotamian culture. So it's everyone's history now. And they collected, they refined and improved on the classical styles. Let's not forget, at this point, they have something like 2,000 years of continuous history. A bit less than that of written history, but that's still pretty impressive. Nearly everything was written on clay tablets. These Kassite-era Babylonian scribes literally had stories and religious texts which had been written down in the early dynastic period to work with. Though, even by the Kassite era, much has already been lost and damaged. Still, the conservatism of the Kassite period scribes created a huge cultural renaissance, and the fact that everything was written in, in Akkadian, the language that everyone in the Near East all the way to Egypt knows how to read, well, I mean, if you know how to read, this means that Kassite Babylonia was culturally very impressive. Indeed, while we don't see them exploiting this power or really understanding it explicitly, the fact that everyone in this period, and as we push into the late Bronze Age now, everyone in this period had a deep respect for Babylonia, even though they weren't as wealthy or powerful as their neighbors, and this makes them possibly the first soft power kingdom in the history of the world. Other nations wanted their doctors and magicians, their clothing and their pottery, and most of all, they wanted their stories, freely taking the best myths and legends and gods of Mesopotamia and adopting them into their local pantheons. We see this in Canaan. We see these legends of, of Mesopotamia getting pulled into the Hurrian myths and the Hittite myths. And the Egyptians were culturally much more closed off, but we still see in their letters deep respect for the Babylonian civilization, even when they're sometimes competing against particular kings. The Kassites ruled Babylon throughout the Late Bronze Age, but because of their economic weakness and cultural focus, they weren't really the big story of the period. The Late Bronze Age was an era of great power conflict. In the southwest was Egypt. In the northwest was the Hittites. In the northeast, above Babylon, was a kingdom called the Mitanni. And all four powers fought over land and wealth, none of them really able to completely eat any of the others. About halfway through the Late Bronze Age, the Mitanni collapsed, and in their place, the city of Asher was once again able to rise up and establish a mighty kingdom, this time through force of arms rather than peaceful trading. After that point, the four-way battle mostly turned into two great theaters. 
In the West, Egypt and the Hittites fought bitterly, culminating in the famous Battle of Kadesh, which may have had as many as 50,000 men on each side, or maybe just half that, but it would still be really impressive. In the Eastern Theater, Babylon and Asher fought over the stretch of land between the two of them, with quite a lot of drama, and even a short occupation of Babylon by Assyrian forces, though in this case, popular rebellion was able to shake off the yoke of foreign impression. The Late Bronze Age was really quite exciting, filled with some of the best episodes of the Oldest Stories podcast, but right around 1200 BCE, kind of all of a sudden, a whole bunch of barbarians showed up and kicked the teeth out of all four civilized powers, resetting the playing field for a hundred years. In addition, there was probably a giant climate collapse, which may have been what incited the barbarians in the first place. This is known as the Bronze Age Collapse. The 19th dynasty of Egypt would fall apart, the Hittite Empire would be completely dismantled, the Kassite dynasty would be killed off, and Assyria would be reduced to pretty much just a few cities around Asher for a while. This is not the end of history. Indeed, in some ways, some of the best stories are just getting started with the Bronze Age collapse, but it is the end of the Bronze Age, and thus the end of this Bronze Age summary. All these events have been gone over in 120 podcast episodes of detail on the Oldest Stories podcast. If you haven't checked that out yet, you can find it on pretty much any podcast thing, um, and it's on YouTube. I don't know where you're listening to this. I got it a bunch of places. I, you know, I'm posting this wherever I can post it. Uh, following this episode, the show will be diving into Season 2 where we'll be covering the thrilling stories like the rise of the great empires of Assyria and Babylon, these being the empires and kings you've actually heard about, as well as tracking the progress of a fairly obscure tribe of folks in Canaan who for some reason worship only a single god and surely won't have much impact on the subsequent 3,000 years of history, I don't know why we're following these weird Israelite people. We'll find out. Anyway, if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. Glad to have you. And if you've been slogging through episode after episode, then do consider doing me a favor and sharing the podcast with folks you know. Maybe leave a review on your podcast app if there's a review section or post the show on social media. I do get a few donations from the Oldest Stories website, but mostly I do this because I love these ancient stories, and I love to share them with everyone. I really hope everyone's excited for the Iron Age, which will start in two weeks. And thank you all for listening.